0: My name is Joanna Smith, and I do a lot of activism in a lot of different areas. I kind of consider it to be my job. I I call myself a professional citizen, which to me just means paying attention to what's going on and acting when it's necessary. And in terms of climate in particular, I feel like I've always
1: been very aware of the issues around it. Joanna Altman smith was one of two activists arrested at the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. in April 2023. She and her fellow activist Tim Martin, both members of the group Declare Emergency, smeared water-soluble finger paint on the glass display case around a Degas statue called Little Dancer. Then they sat down in front of it and read a statement about why President Biden needs to declare the climate crisis a state of emergency. Martin and Smith, both parents, talked about fearing for their children, who, unlike the little dancer, are not protected by glass and face an increasingly dangerous world. Gallery visitors gathered around them, along with a few journalists they had invited, and then they were arrested pretty quietly, as expected. The indictment that came down for them both a month later was more of a surprise. The two were charged with conspiracy against the United States because the protest took place in a federal building. That crime comes with a potential jail sentence of 10 years and a fine of half a million dollars.
0: It was quite a shock. I think that's the perfect word. I I could not believe... That what I I left. I was being held by the National Park Service police because of the location of the protest was on the, the National Mall, and that's their jurisdiction. And when they released me, they gave me a kind of a hearing appearance ticket that indicated that my my violation was defacing public or private property, which is exactly what I. Did and intended to do in the most non destructive way possible, right? But right before that hearing was to happen, I received a call from my lawyer informing me that it was now in federal jurisdiction and that I had been in, indicted by a grand jury on two counts, which are public and I can repeat them here. One was conspiracy against the United States of America. And the other was pertaining to a a very obscure statute that covers only the National Gallery and sets a much lower threshold of damage than any that I was aware of. The general misdemeanor damage level, I believe, in in D.C. is somewhere like around $1,000, and this statute makes any damage at the National Gallery over $100, a felony. So I was, yeah, indicted on two felony counts,
1: and it was just a shock. I'm Amy Westervelt, and this is Drilled, the real free speech threat. Throughout this series, in addition to bringing you investigative pieces on the role of extractive industry in the criminalization of protest and reports from the front lines all over the globe, we will be bringing you the stories of people who have been directly impacted by this trend. As you heard in our episode on the Atlas Network, a key step in criminalizing protest is vilifying the protesters themselves important then to remind people that these activists are humans, that they care about perfectly reasonable things like protecting their kids, and that actually it's pretty admirable to take on big risks with your comfort and your security in order to fight for the greater good. Earlier in the season, we heard from Disha Ravi, the youth climate activist in India who's been charged with sedition for working with Fridays for Future and supporting the farmers' protests there. Today, the story of Joanna, who describes herself as just a middle-aged mom from Brooklyn trying to do the right thing. That story coming up after this quick break. You're listening to this show you are probably at least climate curious and one thing that i get asked all the time is okay i understand that this is a big problem we need to act now but what can i do the climate crisis can feel like such a huge overwhelming problem which is why this april former u.s vice president al gore and The Climate Reality are holding a free training on what's happening with the climate and what we can personally do. And actually, I'm gonna be part of that training. It all happens in New York City, April 12th through the 14th, and it's gonna be big, really big. If you wanna know what climate change means for your future, your career, your part of the country or the world, this training is for you. You'll get to hear straight from former US Vice President Al Gore, and a lineup of incredible thought leaders, scientists, experts, and more at the top of their fields. I'll be doing a training on climate disinformation as part of this. You'll come away with a real understanding of what's happening to the planet and the skills to make a difference. If you complete the training, you'll join the Climate Reality Leadership Corps, a community of nearly 50,000 changemakers all over the world. To learn more and apply, visit climaterealityproject.org slash new york. That's climaterealityproject.org slash new york. I hope to see you there. Environmental justice is a talking
0: point in every politician's toolkit. But do you ever wonder where it all began? On this week's Line, we're taking you back to 1978, where a fight against a toxic dump in North Carolina started the environmental justice
1: movement. Join NPR's Climate Week and listen to Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This holiday season, get a gift and it fights everyday stains and odors. You get a powerful clean, but you don't have to deal with all that packaging. Right now, my listeners can get started with Earthbreeze and save 40% for zero. Go to earthbreeze.com drilled. That's E-A-R-T-H-B-R-E-E-Z-E dot drilled for 40% off your subscription earthbreeze.com slash drilled.
0: Even as a child, I grew up in Berkeley, California. There was a lot of activism and social movement around me all the time. And I guess one of the big issues of my childhood was a a general sense that things need to be done in a different way in order to protect I guess back in the 70s it was more of a focus on wildlife and open space out in California so issues would be addressed around certain species who were threatened with extinction or preserving a park for public use when developers wanted to build a house on it or that, that sort of granular local issue. We had a roadway in Berkeley. It still is, I believe, closed off every season to allow newts to cross. It's up in the Tilden Regional Park above Berkeley. They have these wonderful newt crossing signs up in Tilden. Anyway, so just, you know, as a kid, just very aware of our impact affecting other species. Um, my elementary school in Berkeley was one of the first probably to have any kind of garden element. It had um, something they called the Environmental Yard, Washington Elementary on Martin Luther King, which was basically just this huge open space um, with plantings and a pond, and we could just run around in there at recess. So that was a big formative thing for me. Moving on into college years, I went to Vassar College in Poughkeepsie, in the nineties. And at the time there was no recycling program on campus. So a bunch of students and I would get up early on Sunday mornings and drive around in a truck, collecting all the empties from all the house parties and take them to a recycling center in Dutchess County. I think that was probably like my first on the ground, trying to do something with my hands to make things better But in terms of like political involvement around the climate issue, I'd say my entree was actually around transportation issues in New York City. I was very concerned about how cars were dominating the urban environment and polluting it and making things unsafe on the street level for everyone else trying to use the city. So I got involved in advocating for safer streets for people walking and riding bikes and helped found a political action committee around that issue that still exists in New York to help get people elected who understood all the issues that come up around around giving people choices about how they move around the city. And then that that got me involved in all kinds of local politics. I served on my local police precincts community council for a couple of terms, trying to help them understand the issues around the built environment, how they could better be good community partners around that. Gave up on that. (laughs) Gave up on trying to reform the NYPD. And I joined my local, it's it's like the lowest level of government in New York City. It's called the Community Board. There are like 50 of them around the city. And the idea behind them is to have citizen input on uh, local issues ranging from liquor licenses to historic preservation. Um, and I became very aware sitting on that board that we were still litigating really important climate issues on a block-by-block basis. Things like trying to remove one parking spot to allow for more bicycle parking on street or letting a homeowner put solar panels on their historic district house. or This kind of thing would take hours and hours of fighting <laughs> and discussion. And sometimes they would pass and sometimes they wouldn't. And I just started to feel like the um, extreme weather events that were happening in my life were being caused by all of our, our man-made emissions and that the local politics wasn't up to speed in terms of coming up with solutions around that. Um, so yeah. I have over the years done a lot, like I mentioned, the electoral politics, like doing get out the vote and petitioning and trying to get certain people in office. I've also done a lot of citizen lobbying with various nonprofits in the climate area and other issues that I care about, like Moms Demand and the Trust for Public Land and the National Resource Defense Council, New York Renews, um, which is a coalition of several hundred environmental and community groups in New York state, um, trying to get climate friendly legislation through our very broken legislature. So yeah, I've done, I've done like a lot of on the ground organizing and, um, part of that has been rallying and protesting. I've done a fair amount of die-ins and picket lines and, blockading of buildings to raise awareness on different issues, have focused on primarily financial targets because we live in New York City. And that's where the headquarters of, of a lot of the largest funders of fossil fuel infrastructure are based. Yeah, I have like a really great group of meditative friends from all different faith traditions. And we get together once a week and hold a kind of silent meditative witness in front of the BlackRock headquarters, sometimes within it. <laughs> um, occasionally, I've been arrested there for nonviolent civil disobedience, things like protesting in the lobby after they ask us to leave or making a little bit of a, a challenge for people entering the building so that they are able to hear the message that people are are trying to get across about how their version of responsible investing isn't truly responsible because they don't follow things through the whole value chain. So that's kind of my background, but I'd say in terms of what I just did with Declare Emergency in Washington, that was my first time stepping up as an individual, putting myself on the line with my partner, Tim, to really do something that we knew would raise the alarm on the government's lack of climate action to the level that would pierce the bubble of mainstream media which is very inclined to not cover any of all the things I just mentioned to you. (laughs) Pretty much radio silence on the part of the large media outlets in terms of what's happening on the ground, how broad the movement is at this point, how intersectional it is, how so many different social issues are coming into the climate issue um, because we're all interconnected. So this this action was devised as a way to make sure that some coverage happened. And we did that by doing it in a very public space um, and doing it in a way where we could get our our speech out and explain what we feel needs to be done to move the dial on climate action. But we also did it in a completely nonviolent way and also non-destructive. We use purposefully used tempera paint that is otherwise known as washable finger paint that's used in nursery schools all over the world. <laughs> and we did it because we wanted to have, yeah, a, vi- a visual component because that kind of theatric is what ends up being covered And we needed that coverage in order to start more discussions. And it needed to happen in Washington, D.C., because that's where our leaders are making all the decisions or lack therein that are making it very hard to live on this planet at the moment. (laughs) And it's just going to get harder.
1: So there's so many things that you just mentioned that I want to pick up on. One of which is this thing of the media. I consistently hear from people who are organizing actions that it is like impossible to get the media to cover activism and especially to cover it as anything other than a disruption. Any facts. Yeah. Yeah. Or any any
0: background as to motivation of why people might want to take this personal risk that is the challenge. I would say that there's been a little bit of coverage on our particular protests that I found very spot on and compelling. And all of that has come from social scientists who some journalists reach out to and, you know, get a larger picture of what's going on with movement building. Pretty much all of those Academics, scientists, professors, they all understand the need for the disruption to get the media to pay attention. And the idea is to not, you know, keep manifesting the disruption for all time. The idea is to get the disruption covered, starts people talking about the issue, learning more about the issue. I mean at the point we're at with the extreme weather spiraling out of control all across the globe it's not exactly like we need to raise awareness or you would think it wouldn't be but it's it still is a necessity because you look at the pushback that our protest has received from pretty much everyone within the art world anyone from mainstream newspapers, who we still respect, we still understand the need of the free press to get important information out to the public. That's why we wanted so dearly for them to cover our protest. But then you get things like the Washington Post editorial board painting us with very broad strokes and pretending that they didn't understand the need for it in the way we approached it when all of the social scientists say, this is exactly what has to happen.
1: So actually, I think it'd be helpful for people who are not familiar with organizing or protest. Could you right. walk me through how does an action like this come together? And- right. I'm,
0: of course, not allowed to talk about the specific action that right. is currently being litigated, but I have participated in so many actions over the years. So I can yeah. speak to the fact that, yes. Yeah. General general organizing involves clarifying a message and a mission. What are you, what are you trying to achieve? That can be done starting with one person. I see a problem. I want to fix this problem. How am I going to go about explaining this to other people? So right, you have to come up with what what you're doing and why you're doing it. Then you reach out. There's outreach. You find like minded people. You find them in a wide variety of ways these days. You put something on social media, you print up a poster, you print up a palm card, you get out to the farmer's market and talk to people. You ask friends and friends of friends to help share your message of what you are hoping to change. And then you get together with those people who have expressed interest in connecting with you on on that issue and you devise an action plan. And that is generally um, something that depends on who you're trying to reach in terms of where the, where the change can actually be made it depends on locations it depends on various people's risk tolerance in terms of interacting with both law enforcement and anyone else who might come down the pipeline after having done something like this So basically, groups are divided into by risk and certain actions depending on your immigration status, your age, your current employment situation, your need to be home for your kids. There can be a variety of reasons why people might not want to engage with law enforcement. But because this is like the moral issue of our time, Protecting a livable planet is something that a lot of people are willing to engage with law enforcement around. And that engagement needs to be nonviolent for it to be powerful in any way. And so there's training that happens around that for the people who are willing to risk arrest. There is a lot of coming together about different ways of s- communicating, ways of speaking with each other, how to show respect through body language, how to position yourself in a way that will reduce the chance of harm to yourself and others. There are a lot of different components to nonviolent civil disobedience, and anyone who's planning to undertake that in a way that will actually eventually make some change happen, needs to be up to speed on all that. So that training takes place. And then the day of action finally comes around and hopefully everyone that you've gotten on board knows exactly what their role is and is there to support one another. Then there is a whole another element of support that happens around helping those who have decided To risk arrest. So, people will take care of personal belongings. People will make sure that they have your emergency contact and your medical needs written down somewhere. People will come to the location where you have been detained after an action and greet you when you are released and make sure you have a snack and make sure you know what your next legal steps are. So, There's a lot from soup to nuts. It's like a really long process, but it's amazing people power when you get people on the ground all there for the same reason, all trained in nonviolent civil disobedience and all ready to help make a protest happen in a way that will... Get the message out, the intended message out, and make sure that everyone
1: stays safe. It's interesting because I feel like one part of the the sort of backlash currently is to almost paint that organizing as like insidious. Exactly. Yes. Like organized crime or something. It's exactly what they are
0: doing. And when I speak to my surreal position as an individual, I have been aware of this happening in other countries, even in other states in the United States. I always somehow thought that the RICO laws were specific to organized crime and for people who are trying to harm other people or cheat other people or do something very nefarious. And all of this climate movement organizing that's now being charged under these laws is the opposite. The intention is to support other people and help other people and quite frankly, save other people. So I find it very interesting that the whole concept of getting together with assembling with like-minded people and coming up with effective protests is now considered something sinister, that dis- yeah. dissent, dissent in general is in many eyes seen as the same as destruction or something.
1: Yeah, there's a lot going on in the US and then we're also looking at what's going on in other countries and where there's overlap between things happening here and in other places. And I was talking to a disinformation researcher about trends that they're seeing and climate disinformation and things like that. And she didn't even know that we're working on a series about the backlash against protest. Mm-hmm. And she, I was mm-hmm. like, so what are you looking at? What are the things that are concerning you in the next six to 12 months? And she was like, well, I'm really concerned about the rhetoric I'm seeing that's sort of othering and demonizing of climate protesters And I'm even more concerned about the way that the media seems to just be running with that frame.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I I have an exhibit A for you to check out, which is an article
1: that ran in the Times. Oh, yeah, I saw it. Where They were really defensive of the museums and how this is causing problems for them. Yeah, we went into this acknowledging
0: this is going to be a pain for the museum. This is going to inconvenience a lot of people. It's going to probably be upsetting to people there. But it's not going to harm any of them, and it's certainly going to be easy to clean up. That was our thinking. But the Times piece didn't even do any fact checking, as far as I can tell, based on some things I've seen coming out of the discovery process. And I am pretty concerned about a a news outlet that I rely on as a New Yorker running such a one sided piece where they really didn't even get to the the heart of the matter, which is, what's the issue? Why are all these people doing this? <laughs> Particularly a uh, mom and dad of a certain age, like Tim and I are, we felt really compelled to do this action as parents, pr- as a protective measure to keep our kids and all kids safe around the world. And That really didn't make it into that article.
1: (laughs) Wow, that's
0: really interesting. Yeah, just back to the museum itself. I have an advanced degree in an art-related area of study. I'm a historic preservationist, so I have learned how to conserve art, and I've learned the importance of art in society as an expression of our highest human spirit and what we decide to um, preserve and conserve is a reflection of our ideals. And I live around a lot of art and I'm a longtime member of the Metropolitan Museum. I, I attend uh, art festivals and I go to galleries for fun and openings at museums and it's just a big part of my life. Um, and I, felt comfortable doing this action because i realized that this extreme weather that is being brought down by all of our man-made emissions is going to threaten all those beautiful things that i've loved for my whole life including art in museums including all the precious people in my life and including all of the amazing places i have lived my life that I think, should be around for other generations to enjoy. I just, I don't think that inaction is an option anymore, given what the science is telling us. And I believe the science. I believe it. I'm not terribly knowledgeable on the science, but I am listening to the high-level overview of what the IPCC is saying I am listening for sure to the UN secretary general who comes out and says things like the real radicals are not the activists. The real radicals are the fossil fuel companies who refuse to change their way of doing business. And that, that gets to all levels. Like I I, living in New York, I attend a fair amount of like conferences and symposia that are open to the public. And sometimes those are at places like NYU or Columbia university and I sit there and I see who is on the dais, who's getting the spotlight at these institutions. And then I realize, oh, those those same companies and the representatives of those companies are the ones who are funding the research. They're the ones who decide what will be presented and what won't be. And it's it's really shocking, like that all these universities have ethics divisions they have someone whose job it is to make sure that it doesn't impact the research but i'll tell you from even just from sitting in on basic webinars where there's someone from BP right there next to all the professors those professors are not going to actually speak their full mind and heart because they know where their bread is buttered they need that next research
1: grant whenever i talk to people at universities actually they they make a free speech argument about it It sort of comes full circle right all right right they say well we give our researchers and our professors academic freedom and if we try to tell them who they can or can't accept funding from then they'll kind of point to citizens united as like this precedent yeah the most recent document dump from the congressional investigation, BP in particular, like was saying in their emails about how valuable that the relationship with like Princeton, for example, is not just because they can shape the research agenda and get their point across and all that stuff, but also so that they, I think it was like, they said something like, so that we know what the other side is thinking. <laughs>
0: Oh right. Oh boy. It's pretty dark. I think it I think that the interior secretary just said something along those same lines where she she was very much politicizing the desire to slow down our extractive businesses with mm-hmm. progressive politics. She mm-hmm. said, I'm not gonna just listen to the progressives who wanna stop drilling. It shouldn't be, you know, it's a bipartisan issue. Survival is a bipartisan issue. And if we keep heating up our our atmosphere the way we are, it's really not going to matter whether you're a progressive or a conservative or anything, you won't be able to go outside ever. That's the first part. And then the food supply will get disturbed. That's the second part. And it won't really matter what your politics are. It's just... I don't understand how people don't see how all the systems are connected. it's To have people at the highest position, I think the energy secretary yesterday tweeted about how upsetting it was to see all the extreme weather events hitting all over the country and how much suffering they're causing with a complete disconnect that she is in charge of the agency that sets our energy policy. For the most powerful country on earth, right? She, She's the yeah. one, she's the secretary. You <laughs> know, they do <laughs> that she's... a lot.
1: A lot of U.S. government officials will make these statements like, I wish we there was something we could do. There's
0: a lot you could do. And that's what yeah. I try to give them credit for the many things that they have done. I'm very excited by a lot of the parts of the Inflation Reduction Act that seem to be focused on regenerative agriculture or... Expanding transit or things that can really move the dial. But if you're doing that at the same time, you're authorizing things like the Mountain Valley Pipeline and Willow and the big LNG export facility up in Alaska, that's going to wipe all those gains off the table. It's a lot to unpack for a regular person trying to live a regular life, juggling jobs and family and all of the stresses that are coming as a result of the massive income inequality in our country. Where is anyone supposed to have time to sort all this out? That's why we need our leaders to do their jobs, right? It's not really not our job to come up with the policy. And <laughs> that's what we elected them for. And our government is still quite involved with that industry from a particularly from a campaign donation standpoint. And a lobbying standpoint. That's who's whispering in the ears of our leaders. Their access is so much greater than an average citizen. So here I am, little average citizen trying to be heard.
1: I am curious to hear, I guess, yeah, like what your initial thought was when you heard these charges.
0: Yeah, it was quite a shock. I think that's the perfect word. So I was, yeah, indicted on two felony counts. And it was just a shock. It was a shock to hear that from my lawyer because I knew that I was taking a risk by taking this action, but I had no idea what the level of risk, in fact, turned out to be. In in past actions I've undertaken in D.C., things like die-in on Capitol Hill or sitting in the halls of Congress during the Kavanaugh hearings, I was always given a very manageable fine and allowed to kind of release myself on certain there were some some constraints like occasionally in new york i'll get promised to not do anything for a certain number of months in terms of my protest activity but yeah there's never been any kind of threat of sentencing of this magnitude before so it's it's kind of uncharted territory for me (laughs) i was surprised that that this would be coming from the federal level, the conspiracy charge, the federal level, given the administration that we currently have. I was expecting that when that happened down in Georgia with the Stop Cop City protesters, I said to myself, well, that's a Georgia, that's a Georgia problem. That's something that kind of overreach is because that particular state does not have leadership that respects people's right to protest, and I would expect that from some of the things I've heard about Georgia politics over the years. But to see that coming out of Washington, D.C., as well, under a Democratic administration, that to me says we're in deeper trouble than we thought. And not just me and Tim, but all of us. That shows me that our government is afraid Of something that Tim and I said in that gallery, because if we had gone in there and just maybe done like a little graffiti tagging of the pedestal with the same paint and walked out without saying anything, I'm pretty sure that the government response would be quite different than what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And that should be a concern to all Americans, right? I mean, I just keep saying, was it something I said? And yeah, it was. It was something I said. (laughs) That there's some pretty powerful interests that don't want
1: that to be said. (laughs) That's really interesting. So logistically, what are you waiting on right now?
0: Right. So we we had our first initial hearing on Friday that was supposed to be straightforward. It was just supposed to be all the parties involved in the case meeting with the judge. But there was a surprise. The judge issued additional restrictions on our pretrial agreement. So already both Tim and I have, our travel is very restricted. We have to get court permission to leave our home federal court districts. We've had our passports taken away. And we have to check in on a regular basis with the pretrial services. And we are um, forbidden from entering the National Gallery. We're also forbidden from entering Washington, D.C. as a whole. Because at my arraignment, the prosecution uh, made a very verbal equivalency with my nonviolent civil disobedient protest and what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. And he argued with the magistrate that outside agitators have been coming to Washington, D.C. to disturb the community in various ways, and they need to be kept out. And if you've done any reading of Dr. King, his, his letter from Birmingham Jail explains very nicely why the whole concept of an outside agitator Around issues as big as civil rights or climate change make no sense. There there is no outside to these issues, right? If you if you understand what's going on, you understand that everyone is impacted, therefore there's no outside. <laughs> but anyway, so we were already quite restricted under those guidelines, but the judge on Friday also decided that. We should not be allowed to enter any museum. And that is very distressing to me because it's very broad. It's very vague. And there was little uh, explanation of why why that was necessary.
1: So that's where we are. I thought this was strange that they made a point of saying Over the last year, in addition to this offense, Declare Emergency has blocked roadways around the Washington, Mm. D.C. area. Yeah,
0: this this was my first protest with Declare Emergency, and I really didn't have anything to do with any of those roadblocks. And another thing that came up in the hearing on Friday was uh, the judge's concern about copycat activities and that somehow by prohibiting... Tim and my ability to go to any museum, that that would somehow prevent copycat activity. Once again, not sure what that has to do with me, but I don't understand all the legal ramifications and I'm learning as I go along. If I'm somehow able to compartmentalize a little bit, I am finding the process fascinating to kind of learn how how the system works, how the criminal justice system works—it's—it's it's really interesting to uh, be in the in the belly of the beast. <laughs> I have one like very visceral experience I've had so far. Mm-hmm. Of when I went to surrender to the FBI, I thought it was going to be kind of a straightforward, more of a like a clerical matter, <laughs> but I ended up being put into shackles and taken into custody for a good part of the day without a lot of explanation of what was happening or why that was necessary so i guess that's just their protocol for when somebody surrenders but that gave me a lot of insight into you know just what business as usual means
1: how how people are treated I'm curious just what you think about this way that activism is being portrayed both kind of by the government and in the media where being like a, a professional citizen or a career activist or someone who goes to a lot of protests or organizes a lot is like increasingly being um, painted as like this kind of suspect activity. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I do think it's funny that like I, I feel like it it is often people that I think probably do quote MLK Regularly, So I'm curious what you think about that.
0: Yeah, I I recognize that most people cannot dedicate as much time to following the issues and occasionally showing up in person for something the way I've done the past many years because of all the things we were talking about before. And my circumstance is very different. I was a full-time stay-at-home mom who did not end up going back to work because right around when I was planning to do that, the pandemic happened. And then things changed. Work seemed, yeah, like something I could do from home, which is what I've always done with all of this kind of thing. And I just have the flexibility in my schedule. I have the flexibility in terms of our economic security. I have the flexibility of having a supportive partner. I have the flexibility of my race. I am a white woman with gray hair, and I am much more likely to be treated with some modicum of respect than a lot of people who are on the front lines of, of the climate crisis. So I use all of those, you know, those advantages that I have to try and move the dialogue. I also feel like there's something to be said around being a woman of my age in our particular American society where... I'm done with my child's birthing and rearing. And I can't really think of anything else I could be doing right now that would have as much of an impact as what I am doing. So I just think it's the best use of my time. Yeah, And I don't think that there is any reason to vilify that. I am also, I want to say, the oldest sibling in my family. And I come from a, a pretty complicated immediate family structure where I was kind of the primary caregiver. And I think I'm still in that role. I think I'm still trying to take care of everything and everyone. Yeah. And yeah. That's just how I'm that's just how I'm wired. I can't leave it to someone else to do because yeah, growing up, if I didn't take care of it, it didn't get done. And yeah, I think there's a lot to be said for that. <laughs> I don't know, not to be too grandiose, but it is my hope that people will see just like, oh, stay at home mom, stepping up and doing something bold. We'll call it bold. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe I can at least get in touch with my legislators or work on a local issue. Or It's such a great antidote to all the anxiety that so many of us are feeling
1: Can I ask you what your kids think of all this? Are they, you know, scared or worried for you? Or, yeah, what do they think? Yeah, they definitely are concerned
0: about how Mm -hmm. this is all rolling out, this particular protest. But overall, they have been kind of, I would say, there's like an element of bemusement because they're used to seeing me in a very different light, just like puttering (laughs) around the house, making a dinner or watching TV or whatever. And and then they see me suddenly like chained to something and being arrested. And I think there's a, a cognitive disconnect for them, for sure. But they also, I mean, understand the issues that I get out there for. And they, I think, are in general agreement that Someone needs to be doing something about it. So I would say they don't hold it against me, but they find it kind of amusing (laughs) until now, I will say, because this case, there's really nothing amusing about it. And I think they are worried for me. They are being extra nice, extra supportive. They are not asking a lot of questions, which I think is natural because they probably know that they'll hear something they don't want to hear.
1: Uh Uh (laughs) I'm not Uh
0: sure if either of them are aware of my possible sentence. And I don't think either of them have really thought about what that would mean for our family life if they were not able to see me for that length of time or have me be a part of their active lives for that part, that length of time. But I think, yeah, so I think they're doing some self-protecting. I, that's the way I would put it, <laughs> by uh, not delving too much.
1: And how how old are your kids?
0: They're 18 and 20. And I was going to say it's actually pretty good timing if there was ever a good time for this to happen because they're both launched. They're both as of this uh, fall, my youngest will be going to college. My eldest is in college, and they they're adults now, and they they have their own lives happening. So that's great. Um, I would I in fact we we felt like we didn't want our youngest to just be sitting around with us um, worrying about the case for the next many weeks. So he had some scholarship money from his high school. He won some awards and he took it and bought a Eurail pass and he's off exploring the world, <laughs> which I'm really excited about. Um yeah, that's and I'm so good. glad. I'm so glad that he's not here with me. I feel like a little bit like a pig pen from the peanuts with a little cloud of dust over my head where I'm just kind of like, I have a lot of good coping skills and I have a lot of great support, but it is, it's a weight. Totally. Like a of, well, yeah. A lot of uncertainty. At least you don't have the,
1: yeah, the added pressure of like trying to kind of make it okay for yeah you know, to,
0: you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. he He could handle some of it, but... Not as much as is going on for sure. Yeah. And I think though what's interesting having them well, especially having the little one just turned eighteen. It's it's so interesting as a parent how they just always stay babies in mm-hmm. your mind. And you mm-hmm. see you like you look at the adult man but you see all the different ages in in that person. And I think when when I think about like their vulnerability I, yeah, I can't get past that, the, the little, the little people vision I have of them. And they, they both have underlying health conditions that, that extreme weather does not help. One, one of them has a heart condition and one of them has asthma. And I am just like in, I'm in mama bear mode, you now with all this wildfire smoke and Terrible humidity and heat. In New York State, we we keep having these ozone alerts where they're like, please don't go outside all day because the ground level ozone is so extreme that if you have any trouble breathing, you should pretty much stay on your couch today. And I have this super active athletic 20-year-old who is probably going to push the boundaries and just see how much he can do out there before it, it takes him down and exhaust them and that's I I just can't stand that as a parent and that's just one person on this planet and there's so many so many kids so many animals just being hung out to dry just being treated like they're completely expendable and in the places that did the least to cause it that's that's the that's the real Rub is that all of we're getting a taste of it up here (laughs) in lovely New York State, but the brunt of it is in places where a lot of people don't even have electricity at this point. They have nothing to do with what has happened and they are getting washed away and burnt to a crisp. It's really unfair (laughs) so we're not just doing this for our own families and communities we're doing it for theirs as well